Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Detective Keefe in the 1993 television movie When Love Kills: The Seduction of John Hearn. Stephen Tobolowski, Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm Hello? doing. <laughs> You're just fine. dumbstruck. I'm, You're dumbstruck. I'm you don't, dumbstruck. You, you, <laughs> when love kills, oh, oh my God, I, I'm remembering this now. It's coming back to me like, like a migraine headache. I'm, I think I've got this now. Larry Ellican directed this. That is correct. Oh yes. my gosh, what a mem- okay. When love kills, this was a great moment in When Love Kills, as I recall. Uh, we, I was playing some kind of Texas Ranger, and I had a, a big De- Detective Keith. Detective Keith, Stephen. Yeah. Don't get it. Let's not be incorrect or no, incomplete no, here. No, but 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 this was. We were all like cowboys. Me and all the cat. We we had big cowboy hats and all sorts of stuff. And we were. There was a scene in which me and my officers were going to a funeral, and it it was pouring rain and we were going out there with umbrellas but larry the director he liked the look of us he didn't want us to open the umbrellas and i'm and i was saying like well it doesn't make a lot of sense to carry the umbrellas then i mean it if 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 you walk out there just with the big cowboy hats on, then we'll all get soaked and that'll all look the same. But if we walk out there with the big cowboy hats and umbrellas that we <laughs> never open, then we just look like idiots. I mean, I mean if, you stand in, if you stand in the rain in Texas, David, you open an umbrella. That's one of the rules of life. But I remember that about With Love Kills. But I also did another film with Larry Ellican, and that was the one in Thailand with uh, Richard Crenna. And I, you know, Larry Ellican was a real character. We could talk about him later at times. But, but, All right. Yeah. Well, sorry that uh, you had a, a negative umbrella experience <laughs> on the set of When Love Kills, The Seduction of John Hurt. You know, they don't make them like that anymore, Tobo. That movie was like two and a half hours long. <laughs> TV movie came out in 1993. No, they don't. Do, do they do TV movies anymore? No, they, well, they, they, do, they, they do TV movies, but they're like much less epic in scale in general, unless they're on like HBO or something. Well, I find. well they, we have a thing called cable TV now. So instead of doing like movies for TV, now we have novels for TV that are like True Detective or something that are like 10 episodes long. We don't right. usually do these two hour things where the policemen stand in the rain with umbrellas that remain closed. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, Stephen, you know, I, I thought we could take uh, part of this episode to kind of catch people up on what's going on in your life. You know, how, how are things with you going uh, on this date in late April, I believe, or early May, whenever this is being released? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a chance to spend some time with uh, one of your uh, sons recently. I've been playing one of your sons uh, on the Xbox. We've been playing some video games. But uh, yeah, how is uh, how is the family doing overall? You are making contact with my son on the internet, David. That's correct. Yes. Oh my gosh, how deep does this go? I, you know, I have to say, for everything that's been going on, this has been really a great year in many ways. Uh, I don't know if you know, David, but William, my youngest son, got into medical school. Did you know this? Uh, yeah, I did know that. Yeah. Because, yeah, this is fabulous. It means I'm going to have a direct pipeline to pharmaceuticals in the near future. Uh, The unexpected joy was when I learned that medical school doesn't have parent-teacher meetings. On the downside, William gets to practice his various medical exams on me. When Ann and I visited him in Baltimore, he had just bought some of his doctor tools from what is comparable to the campus bookstore. He got his hammers and blood pressure monitors. And while Ann cooked him dinner... He gave me a neurological workup. 
Thank God we left town the day before he learned how to do the prostate exam. My eldest son, Robert, is still working on his doctorate in organic chemistry at UCLA. He chose to live at home and not waste his stipend on rent, and it's a win-win situation. He's building his bank account, and Ann and I still have our own IT guy. I can download any new irritating versions of iTunes without fear. I just have to put up with the occasional sarcastic eye roll when I ask how I get into my account. Having children is complicated. It often begins as an accident. He says, after a second martini, Oh, what do you think? She thinks, sure, it beats watching hoarders. And then she smiles. Sidebar, revealing a secret everybody already knows. Women have never needed plastic surgery or lingerie or fashionable clothing or hair extensions or aerobic training or foot binding. All a woman ever needs is a smile. So he and she retire to a secure location and begin making out and realize, hey, this is better than watching hoarders. They get to a point of nakedness and look at each other's respective parts and for some reason conclude there is no way this will end up in pregnancy, even though these specific parts have been responsible for six billion people on Earth. Delusion doesn't stop there. After the birth, you are so filled with love and gratitude that you got through it, you mistakenly think that that was your goal, to raise a person that is filled with love and gratitude. But as I watch Robert, home from the lab playing video games, and think of his slowly expanding bank account, and as I watch William cut off the circulation to my hand with his new blood pressure kit, I realize that my goal has always been to enable them to leave, to stand up on their own and hopefully look with love into someone else's eyes as they order that second martini. It took me almost 30 years to grasp that the end game of falling in love is for them to leave. Like it says in one of my favorite movies, The Sting, the perfect con is when the mark doesn't know he's been conned until it's too late. Well, let me tell you, DNA is a master. You have to appreciate the irony that in the end, often the only traces of a happy life are having lots of photo albums that you don't know where to keep. Work-wise, this has been the best year of my life. One of the few times in my career I've been able to act more than audition. And I got to play good parts on good shows with wonderful actors, the trifecta. I was surprised at how difficult success was. For actors, 99% of the time we're focused on how to get a part and hopefully create a role. We rarely get the opportunity to learn the challenges of abundance. I should have taken my cue from the success we had on Broadway with Mornings at 7 in 2002. We got great reviews. We played to near-capacity houses for almost a year, nominated for over a dozen Tonys. You know, we could have stayed on Broadway for months, but we got tired. Let me repeat that. We got tired. Tired of New York, tired of the eight-show-a-week grind. We were mentally and emotionally exhausted from doing the play itself. Now, you would think over months of performance, you would get into that comfortable, let me just phone this one in space. That doesn't happen. When you work in theater, you're often involved with literature. Literature is writing that doesn't always aim for the crucial 18 to 35-year-old demographic. Even if it's not Shakespeare, and come on, what is? Theater has been built around writing that can endure time. The more familiar you get with a good play, the more likely you are to travel deeper and deeper into the material. After a remarkably short amount of time, you don't play the part. The part plays you. It becomes your dreams, the way you eat your eggs, the way you order your martini. It becomes your companion on every walk through the park, every trip to the grocery store. One of the great challenges of theater is to develop the strength to honor its demands. In 2002, when I was in New York doing the show, I was coming back from breakfast at around noon, which is normal. 
When schedule-wise, you walk to the theater at 4.30 to get into hair and makeup by 6, to warm up and do a show at 8, to leave the theater at 10.30, to start drinking at 11, to get home by 2. On the way back to my apartment, I ran into Shuler Hensley, who was one of the stars of the revival of Oklahoma. He was at a little neighborhood park playing with his daughter. I had just seen his show on my day off, I didn't want to intrude, but I wanted to thank him for his performance, which literally stopped the show. He appreciated my stopping and saying hello. I asked him what the secret was in playing a big part in a musical on Broadway. Schuler laughed as he pushed his little girl on the swing. He said, The secret is not having a life. Everything you do is for the show. His little girl laughed. Schuler smiled and gave her another push and said, Everything except this. At various Q&As over the years, a frequent question I get is, what is the most important part of actor training? The answer is simple and, of course, complicated. It depends on what type of acting you want to do. If a life in the theater is your goal, the most important part of your training is to do it. Do plays, read plays, build sets, tear them down. You have to have muscles to do live theater. As my dear friend Bob once told me, when you do theater, you're running the marathon, not the sprint. Endurance. Film, television, and sitcoms, and and I'm making sitcom a separate category, have different sets of challenges. These jobs are more difficult to get than theater jobs because television and movie producers are usually required to pay actors. Rather than endurance, you need patience. If you want to act in movies or television, you need to develop a healthy attitude towards failure. It can be almost zen. If you arrive at a point where you can see loss as a part of gain, you will be the happiest. No matter what you do, it's easy to get distracted by the shiny object. You can momentarily think the benchmark for success is money or power or recognition. But the only real currency we have is time. The only real satisfaction is in time well spent. You can have that and never act on television. If the essence of acting in theater is endurance... The essence of acting on television or in a movie is about learning to wait, constructively. You have to master your biorhythms. Workdays are unpredictable. In movies, you could shoot all night, especially if you're running away from something. Single-camera television shows like The Goldbergs or Silicon Valley often have early calls. You may have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning to get to the set so you could do your big scene before breakfast. In theater, the script is locked. You must say all of the words as written unless the author changes them. Fidelity is the chief virtue. On Broadway, if you say a line wrong, the stage manager writes you up in his report. Film and television have never been particularly faithful to writers. Many productions prefer the energy of spontaneity. That means taking workshops in improvisation can be more useful than taking classes in scene study. In theater, there are only a few locations that matter. Your rehearsal room, the dressing room, the stage, and the bar afterwards. Each one of these locations becomes a holy place. The rehearsal room is filled with the memories of where you made your first discoveries in a play. It is the place where you looked at your partner for the first time and didn't see your lines anymore. You just saw his or her eyes. Your dressing room gets covered with cards from well-wishers and little idols of luck. I have a toy monkey that bangs a cymbal when you squeeze a ball. I still keep it in my makeup kit. I got that monkey as an opening night gift for the first production of the Misfire Cracker Contest at the Victory Theater in 1980. I was 30 years old. Being a part of bringing that play from script to stage was the greatest career achievement I could have ever imagined. I didn't know it at the time, but most of my life was waiting for me. I didn't know there was an Anne in the world 
or that there would be a little boy named William that would grow up to be a doctor and would ask me before dinner if I had taken any hallucinogenic drugs. But I still put that monkey with the banging symbols on my makeup table for every play I do. I'm not sure why. Maybe the banging monkey is a reminder that the past is always part of the present. When I squeeze his little ball and he starts banging away. (laughs) God, that sounds so wrong, doesn't it? When I squeeze his little ball and he starts banging away, I feel the fever of anticipation from the mix of excited conversations in the waiting audience, meeting blackness, meeting lights up, and the first moment of a play. It fires me up. I pray I never lose that fever. It's one of the best parts of being an actor. The stage has always been holy. It began in ancient Greece as a place where the gods communed with man. And it has not changed. I remember just about every theater I've played in by the smell. Sight is common. One could be deceived. But the smell of various combinations of lumber and concrete and dust and electricity are like a fingerprint. Unique. The bar afterwards always changes, but is always the same. It has a look of a place where you celebrate and you get a little tipsy and you tell your stories and you laugh about how crazy it all is. But the bar afterwards is much more. It's the place where courage is recognized. Tonight, you did it. Together, you worked hard. You told someone's story to the world and you survived to do it again. There is a big difference between courage today and courage tomorrow. Courage yesterday gives you the belief you could do it again. That is why the bar afterwards is holy. On television or in films, you almost never go out afterwards and have a drink or share stories. Or, or, or maybe you do, I just haven't been invited. In my experience, when you finish a TV show or a movie, it's done. You may or may not work with some of the people again, but it's not holy. It's more like commuters changing trains. I found it difficult to get attached to sound stages. I spent several months this year working on One Day at a Time for Sony and Netflix. We shot on Stage 25 at Sony, where I also shot the pilot of Dr. Ken, and where I'm told I'm going to be shooting my last scenes on this season's Silicon Valley. My primary opinion of Stage 25 is that I suspect the air conditioning there gives me hives. It is not holy ground. I found no holy ground when you work on movies. Woodstock, Illinois, where I shot Groundhog Day, does not bring a lump to my throat. Vancouver, where I spend so much time creating forgettable alien entertainment, leaves me cold. With the exception of when I flew there to meet Anne to ask her to forgive me. A trip that eventually led to marriage, which led to Robert and William, which led to the depressing notion that life is about letting go. Maybe making movies and television cannot contain the holy because it's hard to find the center. No matter how successful you are, you essentially become a vagabond. In theater, any stage feels like home. And any proscenium stage feels like my grandfather's home. But film and television often happen on location. Locations carry inherent difficulties that the theater actor never has to consider. This season on Silicon Valley, I shot at what they call a server farm. This is a giant room, and by giant, I mean as big as Walmart. And not just a regular Walmart, but one of their flagship stores. And in this huge room, government and financial and retail institutions from all over the world keep their hard drives and their backups and the backups to their backups. It had an air conditioner on the roof that was as big as a really, really big air conditioner. I was told that there were five backup electrical generators buried deep underground that had apocalypse mode. So if Los Angeles were hit by nuclear missiles, this place could still operate for six months. So I guess that means if you were lucky enough to have survived the blast, you could still shop online. I have no idea where this building is. We came and left in the dark. But however fascinating it was to see this place, it came with a truckload of restrictions. 
It had ultra-high security. It required a palm print to get to different areas of the building, so you always had to be accompanied by the man with the palm. This included the men's room. He always waited politely by the urinals until you were finished to get you back to the set. The servers put out a lot of heat. Even with the massive air conditioner, the internal temperature of the building always hovered between 80 and 90 degrees. My character always wore a sweater, so most of the day I felt like a rotating hot dog at a movie snack bar. The head of security at this place demanded that we not show any of the functioning computers on camera. He said that there were hackers out there that were so good they could freeze a frame showing a working computer, magnify the way they were wired, and know something devastating about the world and ruin our lives. That meant in every take, as actors, when we walked and talked, we had to be aware that we never stood in such a way that the camera would see some of the background in the background. It made me wonder as to why we were shooting here in the first place. But my point is, as actors, we had a lot going on in our heads other than the scene. And that usually doesn't happen in theater. That is one reason why in film and single-camera television, actors don't often get lost in the role. You hope to get lost in the moment, which is a common expression for something that is exactly the opposite. You hope with all of the distractions, you can occasionally be fully unaware. And in that moment, you can be true and not just clever. Now, don't get me wrong. You need clever to do television. One of the most remarkable scenes we shot on Silicon Valley in season three was when Richard Hendricks, played by Thomas Middleditch, musters his courage to stand up to me, his boss, Jack Barker. Now, I've just lambasted him and his friends who are also computer coders. But instead of crumbling, Thomas turns the tables on me. Just as he gets the upper hand, he's supposed to slip, smash his face on my desk, and fall to the ground. They brought in a stunt Thomas Middleditch to do the actual fall. He spent most of his day eating snacks. The stunt Thomas always made me do a double take. He had Thomas's costume and hair. He just appeared to have more upper body strength. When it was time to do the stunt, the real Thomas was amazed they brought in a specialist to do the face plant, smash nose, split lip fall. He shrugged and said, you're kidding. I don't need a stunt man. This is what I do. The stunt Thomas continued to eat snacks and watch in case the real Thomas had a change of heart. He didn't. We shot the fall about 20 times. I was sitting in the foreground behind my desk about two feet away. Each time, I was sure Thomas really slipped and really got hurt. Each time he got up and continued the scene as if he were hurt. Until the director called cut. Each time, Thomas was just acting. The fall was clever. That could be learned with a lot of technique and even more practice. But the acting afterwards, that was brilliant. His performance sold the stunt. The ability to maintain a balance of clever to true is what makes television acting difficult. Film also works at difficult locations, but on a feature there's often more budget and more time. That equates to more control on a shoot. But that isn't always the case. When I did Beethoven's Big Break, or Beethoven 6, as it's sometimes referred to in books about terrible movies, we shot at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. We started on the last scene of the day when one of the locals working on our crew told us we had to finish shooting by 7 p.m. Our director, Mike Elliott, asked why. The local production assistant said, well, that's when the rats come out. I happened to be in earshot of this conversation. I didn't like the sound of it. I wasn't sure what he meant. At 6.59, it all became clear. Hundreds of rats came out of the canals, a.k.a. the open sewers at Universal Orlando Theme Park. They poured out in wave after wave to eat the bits of popcorn, cotton candy, and nachos that covered the sidewalks like so many crumbles of goat cheese on a dinner salad. We figured we had about seven minutes before they got to us, so we chucked the rest of the shoot that day and ran for the vans to get back to the hotel. 
Because we were on a feature, we were able to reschedule the rest of our workdays to accommodate rat time. Our PA seemed calm in the face of the plague of rodents. He said, Rats are good. Every morning the place is spotless. The park has never needed a cleaning crew. I put Sitcom in its own category. The great Norman Lear has called it a hybrid form of theater and television, and that's true. But I think the hybrid concept needs more elaboration. A sitcom has the appearance of filming a stage play in front of a live audience. However, it is not rehearsed as thoroughly as a live theater piece. Changes are made on the fly, and yet it is not improvisation. It is not filmed with as much specificity as single-camera television. The camera people usually just have two passes to get a scene right, get the coverage they need. Anything else is picked up afterwards. One element that's rarely mentioned is that even though the audience is alive and they're sitting in seats facing the playing area, they usually don't watch the show on stage. They can't. There are four cameras and about 30 crew people in the way. There are banks of monitors with our writers and the showrunners and our director and Norman Lear in the way. Most sitcom audiences end up watching the show on TV monitors above their heads. That means the laughs from the live audience are dependent on a little-known technician called the switcher. He or she often bears a great responsibility for a show working. The switcher must have the proper camera shot up at the right time for the audience's video feed. Any errors in timing, any cut to the wrong camera angle or switching to a close-up instead of a two-shot can result in missing a laugh line, a reaction shot, or for missing a crucial story point. Great switchers have longer careers than great actors. The scripts of a sitcom are probably in a state of flux more than any other acting medium. They're usually one or two showrunners, a dozen staff writers, and an entire cocktail lounge of network and studio executives that ask for changes. Every day, the actor gets new lines and loses yesterday's lines. Jokes are tweaked and moved not only from scene to scene, but also from one character to another character. That fact alone should be a tip-off that in sitcoms, material does not have to organically come from character or even from situation. In the mid-90s, I worked with a great group of people on a show called Dweebs. This show was a prehistoric version of The Big Bang Theory. Egghead humor featuring geeks who are more comfortable in the realm of science than with human interactions. The show lived in the comic realm that has served storytellers from the beginning of the written word, a stranger in a strange land. The main difference with The Big Bang Theory and Dweebs is that we were canceled in the middle of our 10th show. On that last incomplete show, there was a joke about how one of the computer programmers was such a slob, it looked like he was growing Ebola in the refrigerator. Well, we never performed that show. We were all released from our contracts and were unemployed. I was fortunate enough to get a job a week later on another sitcom. I got my script, and there was the Ebola joke. Just like the Ebola virus, the joke seemed to be able to spread to a new victim. The reason was apparent. The writer of the Ebola joke lost his job, too. He went to the other show and brought the joke with him. Television comedy writers often keep a file of jokes for years looking for a suitable host. Unlike theater, unlike film, and even unlike single-camera television, an actor in a sitcom has the additional task to try to make his or her material seem like it springs from character. The rules of Stanislavski method acting are gone and are replaced by detective methods used by the Louisville Homicide Department on the first 48. And the onus is not just on the actor. Writers have to fight to make sure their shows make sense, too. One of the veteran writers I work with on Dweebs and again on Mr. Rhodes showed me a script he kept in his attache case. He winked and told me not to say a word. He explained, Stephen, this is the real script. We save it until after the network run-through. The studio and network execs are always giving us notes. They think it's their job. 
I learned if we let them see the good script, they still give us notes and ruin the show. So I sit on this until after the network run through. Then I pull this one out. They think they saved us. They leave us alone. Everyone is happy. In summary, for the theater actor, the key is endurance and fidelity to the word. Whenever you lose courage, remember, you're surrounded by the holy. For the television actor, be patient. Never give away true in pursuit of clever. You need both. For the film actor, no matter what your budget is, you have to remember the rats come out at seven. And for the sitcom actor, make friends with failure. Failure will teach you to embrace stage 25 while you're there and smile as you drive away. I have run into actors in film and television that have never been in a play. In fact, I've run into actors in film and television who have never read a play. But that's an anomaly. Theater is usually the first incubator for a young person's passion to act. When I was growing up in Texas, I knew all about movies. And I loved them. I spent a lot of my time watching classic films on Channel 11 and dreaming of the day when I would be a movie actor. I pretended to get Academy Awards and practice my acceptance speeches in the shower. I even used to ask neighborhood kids that instead of playing cowboys and Indians, we could play making movies. I remember Charlie Harp looked at me funny and asked, How do you play making movies? I said, Well, when you play making movies, you could play anything you want. See, we could still play cowboys and Indians if we want. Or... We could play Run from the Dinosaurs or Doctors in Trouble. Anything. Yeah, that sounds okay, said a very dubious Charlie Harp. I wanted to play Cowboys and Indians. Well, fine, fine, I said. We could play a movie version of Cowboys and Indians. Charlie shrugged. Sure, I guess. And then we ran around and shot each other like usual. I mention this because I know the fantasy of being a film actor was in my mind at an early age. But when I did my first plays in high school, those fantasies left the building. Theater changed my soul. I never thought, well, I'm doing theater now because that's all we have here in Oak Cliff, but someday... No, no, no. From the time I acted in high school in A Different Drummer... I only wanted to be on stage. That was the dream, the only dream. Of course, that dream could have been concretized in my brain by what seems to concretize everything in the brain, sex. When Mary Curtis asked me to be in a different drummer, she also mentioned that the drama department was going on a bus trip to San Antonio to see the play at Trinity University. I should get permission from my parents and come along. I did. On the bus... I happened to sit next to a beautiful girl I didn't know. I found out her name was Becky Anderson. And a few minutes later, I was very much in love with the theater. We arrived in San Antonio five hours later, and by 10 p.m., I loved the theater so much, I climbed out of a fourth-story hotel window and down the side of the building to meet Becky. Fortunately for me, Becky only had to climb out of a second-floor window, and she did. We held hands and ran down to the river. We lay down in the grass and started kissing. After about 20 minutes, the chiggers and mosquitoes got the better of us, and we ran back to the hotel. Sidebar. I've learned several important things about sex. I've tried to pass on to my boys. Sex and nature don't mix, especially water. Sex in jacuzzis, swimming pools, showers, or bathtubs, it's always a mistake. Sex was meant to happen indoors, with air conditioning, preferably on something soft, but with support, and in a room with a door that has a lock. Sidebar to the sidebar. And if you're on something soft in a room with a lock, make sure you turn off the TV. 
There's nothing worse than being in the middle of something important and having your partner say, wait, wait, I have to see who gets chopped. It's also important not to fall asleep when you're having sex. It could become a source of criticism for years to come. I was very lucky to have Mary Curtis as a drama teacher at Kimball. Mary didn't teach acting. She made us act. She produced a fall play, a junior play, a senior play, a one-act play for competition, uh, something called Dinner Theater, which was a lot like a Six Flags Over Texas musical review, except none of us could sing or dance. It didn't matter. I'm not sure Mary Curtis realized it, but she put us through theater boot camp. She built our muscles. I spent almost every day in the holy place, the school auditorium. I never thought that I was investing my time in something I could make a living at, but without question, I knew I was investing my time in something that would make my life worth living. That is the nature of the holy. It gives worth to what others would only see as empty space. The holy becomes a secret between itself and one who believes. There's nothing as seductive as a secret. When I got to SMU, I brought my holy place with me. All of the moments I had on stage at Kimball, the opening nights, the standing ovations. Sidebar, in the interest of honesty, I must say that at Kimball they gave standing ovations for everything. Pep rallies, speeches by the state representative of the 4-H club, Enthusiastic standing ovations for inspirational oratory from Dr. Tom Shipp chronicling the horrors of World War I. In Texas, the standing ovation was considered good manners, demonstrating gratitude that someone showed up and more gratitude that they were finally leaving. I knew from my days in Sunday school that the holy often spoke in signs. After my tour of the theater department that first day of my freshman year, I walk outside, and there was Becky Anderson. That had to be an omen. Exactly one year later, on the first day of my sophomore year, I encounter another girl I didn't know. Her name was Beth. Where did I encounter her? In the theater. Another omen. There was a great debate in the Middle Ages on the nature of angels. Not their existence. That was known to be true. Thomas Aquinas believed each angel was a unique individual and not part of a species. They were composed of pure intellect, but could appear in human form at will. John Dunn Scotus disagreed with Aquinas. He theorized that angels were a race that were made of spiritual matter, but could look and think like humans. They acted as intermediaries between heaven and earth. I thought it was possible that both Becky and or Beth could have been angels that happened to look great in human form that were sent to encourage me in my life in the theater. As I put together this puzzle, the only pieces I could identify were acting and sex. Or maybe it was theater and sex. The only constant was the sex. That seemed like a logical place to start. Sidebar. Growing up in Oak Cliff, we only had one rule for sexual conduct. Don't. Between sex and the theater, I was much happier devoting my passion to the latter. Theater gave me energy and solace, and was the much easier path to take if I wanted to maintain an A average. Near the start of my sophomore year, I got back to my new home, the frat house, to study. I was surprised by commotion. Almost the entire fraternity which was about ten guys, were laughing and preparing to deploy on some sort of mission. Our president, Don Blum, said, Tobo, we're going on a field trip. We're leaving in about 15 minutes. Well, where are we going, I asked. Don winked and said, The mermaid. The mermaid? What's that? Several of the guys started laughing. Mel said, <laughs> You'll see. We carpooled to a distinctively seedy area of town, not far from the school. We pulled into a deserted parking lot. There was a large black shoebox of a building with a painting of a mermaid on the side. I'm guessing from the lack of proper proportions, the artist had just eyeballed the half-woman, half-fish as he painted. The head was too big for the hair. The breasts were too big for the fish tail. But apparently it was good enough. 
The Mermaid was a strip club. Except for the namesake Mermaid on the side, everything else was painted black. I suspect the choice was based on a sale of black paint at a local hardware store. Or so that the building would blend into the night. Sort of a cloak of invisibility to all but the discerning eye looking for the mermaid. Inside, it smelled like a combination of popcorn and disinfectant. We ordered several pitchers of beer for the table. Sidebar. This was a period in my life when people went out and often ordered a pitcher of beer. I thought that's what grown-ups did. You order pitchers of beer with dinner. After I left graduate school in Illinois, I don't think I ever ordered a pitcher of beer again. One thing I learned from my 20s is that almost nothing good happens when you order a pitcher of beer. The lights dimmed. The show began. I was amazed that women just came out on stage and took off almost all of their clothes to music. I mean, why did they need the music? The girls came and went. I kept drinking beer and was displaying the first stages of being a staggering drunk. That's when Pamela came on stage. She was a pretty girl with long brown hair. She didn't seem to have been plagued with acne like some of the other dancers. For some reason, during her dance, I started shouting, I love you, Pamela! Pamela, you are so beautiful! I want to marry you, Pamela! Pamela finished her number and left the stage. All of my friends in the fraternity were laughing and patting me on the back. The next performer, Wendy and her boa constrictor, came on stage. The music started as we continued eating free popcorn and refilled our beer mugs. From a side door of the mermaid, a small woman in a bathrobe made her way to our table. It was Pamela. She held her robe closed tight across her body and asked our group, Who was shouting during my act? Our table got very quiet. She repeated, I know it was one of you that shouted at me while I was dancing. My frat brothers pointed at me in unison. I sheepishly raised my hand. Pamela turned her attention to me and said, I wanted to thank you. Usually we girls have to dance in silence. We feel like nobody cares. But when you shouted those things about how beautiful I was, and that you loved me. It it meant a lot. It made me feel good. And, well, I just wanted to thank you. We were all stunned. Pamela continued to stun. I would love it if you could be here every time I danced. Well, I guess that would be impossible. But if you ever wanted to go out sometime, I would enjoy that. My frat brothers started melting in their seats. I said... Sure. When's a good time for you? Pamela said, Well, I'm free tonight. I said, Sounds good to me. Pamela brightened and said, Great. I get off work at 2.30. I'll see you then. She skipped off. I just smiled and shouted after her, I'll be here. Despite the fact it was my first time ever at a strip club, despite the fact I had drunk an entire pitcher of beer in a very short time, I was quiet, even humbled, in the presence of Pamela the stripper. I thought she was going to chasten me. Instead, it appeared that now we might be engaged. Pamela stopped at the door to the backstage area and waved back at me. I waved. She disappeared to get ready for her next dance. Once again, sex in the theater. I was a hero at the table. (laughs) No one could believe my fortunate date with Pamela the stripper. Tonight, when she got off work, when was that again? I believe she said 2.30. 2.30? I looked at my watch. It was 8.30. So I had a date with Pamela in six hours. That was long enough to drive to Austin, Texas, have a beer, and drive back. That was long enough to fly to England. I, I mean, I'm never awake at 2.30. No one is, except for strippers and policemen. How was I going to be able to do this? I showered. I slept. I ate a meal. I showered again. I slept again. By midnight, I was totally sober and dealing with stripper remorse. I was dying to go to sleep, but I still had two and a half more hours before the date even started. I was in the drama department. No one dated. Where could I take her? 
Even bowling alleys were closed. The only places open at 2.30 are strip clubs. 2.30 finally arrived. I made it over to the mermaid. Pamela was standing in jeans and a sweatshirt in the parking lot. She didn't look like a stripper anymore. Now she just looked like an old, young person. She waved and walked up to my car. I rolled down the window. She leaned in and said, Oh, I can't believe you showed up. It's so late. Yeah, I said, it's low past my bedtime. Pamela smiled and almost blushed. She said, I feel like doing something special. Would you like to come over to my place? Time stopped. I stuttered and said, "Uh, Sure. Follow me. It was easy to follow her. We were the only two cars on the road. We got to her house. It was very tidy and cute. She asked me if I minded if she took a shower and changed into something more comfortable. I stuttered again and said, No, please, please, go ahead. Thanks. I get so sweaty dancing all night. There's beer in the fridge. Just make yourself at home. I did. I drank a beer in her little living room where she had a little couch and little coffee table with a small stack of travel magazines. Pamela came out of the shower in a blue teddy nightgown. Her wet hair was wrapped in a towel. She said, You want to come back to the bedroom? I just have to get off my feet. Sure, Pamela. I headed back down the hallway. My heart was pounding so hard it sounded like someone was listening to Harry Belfonte records next door. Pam was lying on the bed. She patted the spot next to her. Sit with me? I smiled and obliged. Pamela said, Do you know what I really want to do? I shook my head. Pamela smiled warmly and said, You may think I'm crazy. It doesn't matter, I said. What is it? I really want to look at my high school yearbook. Pause. I don't know how Dante counted the levels of hell, but there has to be a special provision for dropping so far, so fast. Sure, I said. Pamela pulled out her annual and started from the beginning. She told me about her French teacher, her English teacher, her gym teacher, the principal, the vice principal, her counselor. She talked about other people's teachers, the custodians. She started talking about the people who worked in the cafeteria by name. I started to think she had to be the friendliest girl in the school. Then we started on the student body. Boyfriends, girlfriends, Enemies, friends, seniors, juniors, hours passed. It was dawn by the time we got to the sophomores. Their pictures were the size of postage stamps. I was near death. I began bargaining with God. At 6.30, I couldn't take it anymore. Pamela, I'm sorry, I have to go. I have to get some sleep and study for a test. Pamela closed her yearbook. She leaned over and kissed me on the cheek and said, Thank you. You're an angel. Thank you for the best date I've had in a long time. I left Pamela's house. The sun was starting to rise. I looked up to the skies and said, Dear God, I swear I will never date a stripper again. I got back to the frat house. I walked in the door, screaming, applause, whooping. All of my frat brothers had been waiting up for me. They said, tell us, tell us, come on, you got to tell us everything. I plopped down on a beanbag chair and said, Well, guys, it's a long story. Later that morning, I walked across campus back to my holy place and wandered down to my secondary holy place, the piano practice rooms. I sat down, put my fingers on the keys. I closed my eyes. Maybe I would be able to write a song, a new song that never was before whose tune would be in a language that Beth would understand.
That was The Holy Places, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, uh, music has been a big part of your life in the past. Is it still a big part of your life? Are you still uh, practicing the piano? I, I love to hear you play when, uh, whenever I get the opportunity. I uh, actually, <laughs> I started in the little time I have to try to take lessons again. And I have a wonderful teacher who's uh, very strict here, and she's a composer as well. And she said something which is very important, I think, to actors and to musicians alike. And she said, don't play music without knowing the timing of the music. Because no matter what you think the notes are, it's the timing that will set the notes free. And so I always was kind of loosey-goosey with the way I kind of read music and counted, but now I'm being more strict, and she's absolutely right, man. It's the timing that sets it free. Well, speaking of timing, Stephen, uh, in addition to finding episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com in the near future... We have a few dates for you where people can see you live uh, telling stories from My Adventures with God, your new book that's out on Amazon right now. Um, so where can people see you in real life, Stephen? I'm going to be uh, starting up one day at a time again, which I'm very excited about. We start doing that and interspersed in one day at a time. I'm going to be doing a couple more book events. On June 8th, I'm going to be appearing at the Skirball in Los Angeles. I'm going to be doing stories. And, and that's a Thursday. And then on uh, June 18th at Theater 40 in Los Angeles, I'm going to be doing stories and a book signing. It's going to be a benefit for the theater there. So if you're around, come on by and do stories. We'll talk, get a book, have fun. All right. And you can find all of Stephen's dates and all of his other stuff at stephentobolowski.com. Spell it for us, Stephen. That would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. The Russian or Polish spelling if you're in the Polish tax district where they use a Y instead of an I. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. Adios.